for those kind words, brother. Let's pray together. Father, although we have just prayed, we confess to you that we need to pray even more, for we are desperate for your help. We ask, O Lord, that as we open up your word once again together, that you would help us to rightly understand it and to stay attentive to it. As is the nature of listening to sermon after sermon, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and it can be easy for us to start to tune out and get tired. But by your grace, we ask, O Lord, that you would help us to hear, and not just to hear, but to do, all by your grace and for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. From time to time in our church, we'll have a sermon about membership, and we find that, that usually the person preaching about membership is yours truly, and it's not because the other pastors think that it's not important, it's just that I, I have a special place in my heart, a special passion on this subject of church membership, and it's not even about becoming an official member at our church per se. I mean, I don't, I don't really have a passion for the membership process. I think it's unwieldy, and I'm always trying to think of ways that we can improve it and make it more efficient. And so I don't, I don't love the, 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 the process of becoming a member, but I have a passion instead for members of this church actually being members. <laughs> members of this church actually being members. By way of illustration, there are those who sign up for gym memberships, right? And they go for a little while, but then they don't go back for months. They get charged every month, and so they're still technically members. But are they actually members of that gym? Could they, could they really honestly call it their gym if they never go to it? And similarly, there are those who sign up for membership at a local church, and they don't participate in the church for months. They're still on the membership roll. The pastors are still praying for them because they acknowledge that we are still accountable for their souls. But are such members who don't participate in the church actually being members? Could they honestly call it their church if they don't fellowship with the church. After preparing for this session called, What is Church Membership? I really found that this sermon could have a different title that would be more appropriate for its content. So if I had the power to, to retitle this sermon, I would change it from, What is Church Membership? to, What are Church Members? What are Church Members? And that's how we're going to be approaching this topic today and the passages that we're going to look at. And, and when we rightly understand what church members are, then we're going to have a better understanding of what church membership is. So that's our aim for the next hour or so. And as we go through today's passages, we're going to break it down with these four statements. These four statements, and I'll repeat them as we go along. Number one, church members are a local group of believers. Number two, these believers do life together. Number three, these believers stand out. And number four, these believers hold each other accountable. So let's take a look at each of these one at a time. Number one, church members are a local group of believers. If you have a handout and you're looking at chapter 26 of our confession, take a look at paragraph six. And it says in paragraph 6 that the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ. So let's take a look at that. Let's, let's see it in the scriptures. And to see it in the scriptures, let's first turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 7. <clears throat> Romans 1, verse 7. The letter to the church at Rome begins by Paul giving an elaborate greeting. He, he identifies himself as the author of this letter, and he gives his vocation, as was common in openings of letters in that time. And his vocation is a servant of Christ Jesus. He was set apart by God to 
declare the gospel and to bring about, notice verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then in verse 6, he includes his audience in that number. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, we see the original audience of this beloved letter. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7 are talking about the same people. Those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ in verse 6 are those who are, verse 7, loved by God and called to be saints. And so now the question is, who are these people? Who are those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, who are loved by God and called to be saints? Well, let's take a look at each of those qualities individually. Belong to Jesus. Belong to Jesus. Who are called to belong to Jesus? The visible church or the invisible church? People who claim to be Christians or actual Christians? In Galatians 3.29, we read this. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, read, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. But before that verse in Galatians 3, we see at the end of verse 26 in Galatians 3 that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then he says in verse 27 that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then in verse 28, just paraphrasing, we see that regardless of ethnicity, regardless of your social status or gender, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So putting all of that together, we can conclude from this passage that those who are Christ's, those who belong to Christ, those who are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, are those who have been, verse 24, justified by faith. Those who are in, verse 26, in Christ Jesus and sons of God through faith. So more simply put, those who belong to Jesus are believers. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are the ones who belong to him. Romans 8, verse 9 further proves this. Romans 8, 9, by saying that it's only those who have the Holy Spirit who belong to Jesus Christ. He writes this in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And finally, on this point, those who belong to Jesus do so belong to him because the Father gave them to him. The Father gave them to him. And Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In other words, there is no one who belongs to Jesus who will not come to him. There is no one who belongs to Jesus who will be cast out. And what that means is that in a local church, even though there are unbelievers who are present in the assembly, not everyone who attends church's meetings belong to Jesus Christ. Getting more to the point, spouses or children of believers do not belong to Jesus Christ unless they are elect. People who attend church for decades do not belong to Jesus Christ unless they believe. So they belong to Jesus Christ. The second quality of these people in these verses were those who, loved, who were loved by God. Loved by God. Well, who is loved by God? You could say that God loves everybody, and you would probably go to John 3.16 to prove that, if John 3.16 indeed means that he loves each and every person individually. But if we look at the scriptures as a whole, we see that God's love is specifically for his people. His love is specifically for his people. Here's a few verses. Romans 8.28 tells us, 
that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In John 15, 13, it it implies that Christ showed his love for us by laying down his life for his friends. And then in 1 John 3, verse 1, 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Lots of people think that we're all God's children. You'll hear that out in the world and sometimes even in the church. We're all God's children. But John is not referring to everyone there because he says in that verse, the reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. So those whom God loves are those whom he calls his children, those who know God through Jesus Christ. Now, there are some verses that show God's mercy on all humanity, and that's why people conclude that God has some kind of love for all of his creation, but there is no verse that says explicitly that God loves anyone but those who believe in him, except perhaps John 3.16. But even there in John 3.16, it doesn't necessarily mean that he loves each and every person individually, but rather that he loves people not just in Israel, but all over the world. The point is that when Paul refers to those who are loved by God in Romans 1.7, he's referring to the people for whom Christ laid down his life while they were still sinners. He's referring to the children of God as opposed to the world that does not know him. So those who are loved by God are those chosen by God to be his people. The third quality of Paul's audience in Romans So we have belongs to Jesus, loved by God. The third one is they're saints. They're saints. To be saints simply means to be those who are set apart by God. That's what it means to be a saint. Well, what do we know about saints? What do we know about these people? Revelation 5.8 tells us that their prayers, the prayers of the saints, act as the incense in God's throne room. Surely only the prayers of believers would be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Revelation 14:12 tells us that saints are those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those are saints. 1 Corinthians 1:2 indicates that that saints are all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, all saints are believers and all believers are saints. Pastor Corey said yesterday that as soon as you believe, you don't become a saint right away. I know what you meant, brother, but I'm, I'm saying it in a different way. As soon as you believe, you are a saint. As soon as you believe, you are set apart for God. You are a saint if you're a believer. All of this is to say that Paul is writing specifically to the believers in Rome. That's his target audience in the book of Romans. And in case there's any remaining doubt that he's writing this letter specifically to believers, note that he says things like this. Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 of chapter 5, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 8 of chapter 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Examples of this throughout the letter abound. He's, he's, he is writing not to the visible church in Rome, meaning those who appear to be the church, but to the invisible church in Rome. He's not writing to the people who go to church in Rome. He's writing to the people who are the church in Rome. You follow? Now, if this letter were being read in a worship service, sure, you know, surely there would be both believers and unbelievers who are hearing it, but it doesn't change the fact that the intended audience for this letter was the believers, meaning that when he was writing to the church at Rome, he was writing to the believers in Rome. So church members are a local group of believers. We see this also in 
1 Corinthians 1-2. 1 Corinthians 1-2. Turn there if you'd like. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, we see Paul's greeting in that letter in the, to the church in Corinth, and we read there, 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we see here that the church of God in Corinth was made up of those who were, verse 2, sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were set apart in Christ Jesus. They weren't just set apart here for Christ Jesus, because if, if that were the case, then it could be argued that the believer's children are also set apart for him. But the church of God in Corinth was set apart in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus are those who are united with him by faith in him. It can only be said of believers that they are set apart in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, they're called to be saints, something that we just covered a moment ago. And they were called to be saints, look at verse 2, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and and ours. That phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, that might sound familiar to you. You might recognize it from Romans 10.13, where Paul is quoting Joel 2.32 by saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Therefore, the church in Corinth were called to be saints together with all those who in every place called upon the name of the Lord and were saved. Again, saints are believers. All believers are saints. And the church at Corinth was made up of those who were called to be saints. In other words, when Paul addresses the church of God in Corinth, he is addressing the believers in Corinth. Those who were set apart in Christ. Those who were called to be saints together with all the believers in every place. Now, why are we making such a big deal about this? Ed, why spend 15 minutes on a Saturday morning to talk about that? Because there are those who think that the church is a mixed community. That the church is made up of believers and unbelievers. And while it's obvious that in any given Sunday morning, there are unbelievers among the church of God, we're, we're seeing in these passages is that the church of God are those who believe in and are saved by Jesus Christ. Now, of course, here we're going to be accused in rebuttal of thinking that we have these regeneration goggles that we can look at people and see if they're saved or not, that we can see who's a believer and who's really not. And, and while it's true that sometimes we genuinely think that someone is a believer in Jesus Christ and they turn out not to be, that does happen, all that shows is that they weren't truly part of the church to begin with. 1 John 2.19 says as much. 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. They were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Those who fall away were not part of the church temporarily. They were never part of the church to begin with. Now, we're not saying that out of some kind of pride or some sort of exclusivity that was, is, is uncalled for. Our desire is that everyone who attends the worship services would trust in Jesus Christ and be part of the church for real. That's our desire for everyone in this room. But the reason that we make such a big deal out of who is the church is the purity of the membership. When we're welcoming someone into membership, we want to have some reasonable confidence that the person that we're welcoming truly trusts in Jesus Christ. And then we use the mechanism of church discipline to either help true believers persevere in the faith or to expose false believers. But our aim is to have a church membership that is made up 
of believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we're not just taking shots at our Presbyterian brethren here, though it may sound like that. Even in the Southern Baptist Convention, this topic of regenerate church membership has recently been an issue. I'm not really sure what the status is now, but back in 2008, when this was the hot topic among Southern Baptists, in 2008, it was reported that 16.2 million Southern Baptist church members out of 16.2 million Southern Baptist church members, only 6.1 million actually attended church on a typical week. So 16.2 members, 6.1 attenders. That's 38%. Again, hopefully it's better now, but those numbers are telling. Now hear this, regular church attendance is not what makes somebody saved but a person who purposely misses the worship services and purposely neglects the assembly of the people of God is showing fruit that they may not be a Christian. We don't need membership roles that are made up of believers and unbelievers. Members of God's church are believers in Jesus Christ. Church members are a local group of believers. Now that said, we move on to our second point, that these believers do life together. These believers do life together. Or, as the confession puts it in paragraph 6, they do willingly consent to walk together, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 2 to see this. Acts 2. Perhaps a, a passage that's already loved by you. So the setting in Acts 2, it's Pentecost. Peter has has just preached to the crowd, and and by God's amazing grace, after this sermon of his, a huge number believe, praise God. We read in verses 41 and 42, Acts 2, 41 and 42. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. 3,000 people turned to Jesus Christ that day. Praise be to God. And not surprisingly, that, that group of people who turned to Jesus Christ immediately started to do life together. They devoted themselves to four things together. Let's look at them. The apostles' teaching, number one. The apostles' teaching, This is simply what the apostles were teaching. How's that for exegesis? Thank you, sir. By the aid of the Holy Spirit, these apostles remembered and taught all that Jesus taught them. He promised that he would do that in John 14, 26, which included rightly understanding the Old Testament scriptures in light of his ministry and his death and resurrection. It was the apostles' teaching that was foundational for the establishment of of New Testament doctrine. And essentially, what we now have in the New Testament is the apostles' teaching. What we have in the New Testament is the apostles' teaching. The early church devoted themselves to this teaching. What else did they devote themselves to? Secondly, the fellowship. The fellowship. Interestingly, each of these four phrases has the definite article before it, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and so on. And what this indicates for us is that the church didn't just devote themselves to to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. They they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And that might tell us that the early church did these things together formally. So when we think of the fellowship, It's probably talking about more than just fellowship in general, but something specific. But whatever the case, fellowship is is about participating with one another, sharing with one another, participating in and sharing in each other's lives and each other's walks. Certainly that included sharing material blessings with each other, as you also see in this chapter, but, but this fellowship is more than just taking care of each other's physical needs. It is about willingly walking together in Christ. It's about our sweet 
communion together in Christ. And one of the central ways that we experience this formally as a church is during our corporate worship on the Lord's Day. We can have fellowship any day of the week. But by the Lord's ordinance, we set aside a special time of fellowship. We might even call it the fellowship on Sunday morning and afternoon. The early church devoted itself to the fellowship. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. That phrase was normally and colloquially used to be talking about sharing meals together, just like we use it today. But it also alludes to when Jesus took the bread during the Lord's Supper and broke it. And more likely, the church did both of these things inseparably. They would eat together, and then they would take the Lord's Supper together. We get a glimpse of that in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about the love feasts and the Lord's Supper. You see, the issue wasn't the love feasts per se. They weren't out of order for having love feasts, but rather that the rich were getting there first. They were eating there for hours. They were getting a little bit tipsy while the poor were out in the fields working. And by the time the poor got there, there was hardly any food left for them. And as a result, because they failed to discern the body, they were taking the Lord's Supper at the end of it in an unworthy manner. So again, likely the breaking of bread was referring to both sharing meals together and sharing in the Lord's Supper together. And they devoted themselves to that. They also devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers. Again, they didn't, they didn't devote themselves to prayer in general. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Remember that these first Christian converts were Jewish. And these Jews already had well-established routines for prayer. They would go to the synagogue or the temple three times a day for prayer. Three times a day. Just keep that in mind when you feel like asking you to go to the afternoon service on Sunday is a lot to ask of you, okay? <laughs> Got to take those love taps where you can get them. And keep in mind that, that they were devoted to praying together. All of these things that they were devoted to, they did together. So when we press people to come, please join us in praying together, especially on the Lord's Day, sometimes we hear, well, I pray at home. We're not asking if you pray at home. You should pray at home. Praise God you pray at home. But that's not the same thing as praying together. Thanks, brother. It is normative in the Bible for Christians to be praying together. When the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples on Pentecost, what were they doing when that would happen? They were in the upper room praying together. When the Holy Spirit, uh, I'm sorry, when Peter was imprisoned, what was the church doing when Peter got out and started rapping on their door asking them to let him in? They were praying together. Praying together as a church should not be rare. It should be common. It should be normal. That's what the early church did, and God blessed that greatly. So, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And the contents of this verse imply that they were devoted to doing these things, not individually, but together. It's hard to have fellowship by yourself. It's hard to break bread by yourself. And the surrounding context also supports that. Look at verse 44 of Acts 2. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45 even tells us that they were selling their possessions and they were selling their belongings and they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And verse 46 says that they did all of this together day by day. It's worth noting that this wasn't the perfect church. We need to realize that, that part of the reason that they could get together every single day and, and were having to liquidate everything and distribute it was that no one was leaving Jerusalem to go back to work. They were there for a Jewish festival and they weren't leaving. And because they weren't leaving, you'll notice that they weren't making disciples of all nations. That didn't really start to happen until Stephen was martyred and the church was then scattered back to their hometowns where they didn't hide, but they shared Jesus with their neighbors. 
Now that being said, what's going on here in Acts 2, 41 and 42 is put forth for us as a positive example. These Christians were doing life together. They were willingly walking together in Christ. And that is essentially what church membership is. Now, there are some people who have been attending the lakes for some time who haven't officially become members, and for a few of them, we're, we're at a mutual understanding for why that's not the case. Uh, a theological conviction, for example, that's orthodox, but just does not fit with our statement of faith. And there are some who aren't officially members of this church that are yet living out biblical church membership better than some people on our membership roles. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean is that there are some people on our membership roles that we don't see very often. Some people in our membership roles that we have to hunt down, that we have to pre-plan on our pastor's meetings. We need to reach out to these people because they're missing. There are some that we've had to eventually vote off of our roles because of inactivity. In other words, more important than church membership is church membership. That makes sense in my head. I don't know if that makes sense in your head. So let me put it more clearly. More important than being on the membership role is acting like you're on the membership role. We're talking about meaningful membership. We're talking about you being devoted to each of these things, the teaching that goes on in the church, the fellowship of the church, the breaking of bread with the church, and the prayers of the church. If you're a member who isn't devoted to these things, are you really a member? Because a church member is part of a local group of believers who do life together. I was tempted to say, don't say amen at this, I was tempted to say when preparing this, if you're not going to do life with your church, resign your membership. But that's not right. The right thing to say is, if you're not doing life with your church, consider your ways. Recognize that being a believer means being part of the church of God. And being part of the church of God is participating in the church of God. Willingly walking with the church of God. That needs to be a high priority item in your life. Fellowship with the saints is not something that you should just squeeze in where you can in your busy schedule. Your life should be scheduled around doing life with the church. I know that's not always possible. There are some people who are stuck in work situations or, or other situations where they are providentially hindered from doing life with the church to the fullest extent. But if that's you, let me just challenge you with this question. Are you actively working toward changing that? Are you even trying to look for another job that would free you up more? Are you considering how even taking a pay cut might be of more spiritual benefit for you, even though physically it may be harder? I didn't mean for all this to be so negative. There is really great benefit and great blessing to doing life together as members of a local church. It is sweet. There is great benefit in speaking the truth and love to each other and sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word on a regular basis. There is great benefit in sharing and participating in each other's walks. There is great pleasure in breaking bread together and sharing in the most important meal, the Lord's Supper. And there is great treasure in coming together to pray. So take part in as much of that as you possibly can. The soul that misses out on that may be alive, but is parched. The soul that partakes of it is full and thriving. So do life together with your local church. Let's review where we're at so far. Church members are a local group of believers, and these believers do life together. Also, these believers stand out. These believers stand out. The confession says that the members of these churches are saints by calling, meaning, again, they're set apart by God, but these saints will also be, look at paragraph 6, visibly manifesting and evidencing 
in and by their profession and walking, their obedience unto the call of Christ. Another way to say this is that Christians should be obviously Christians. Christians should be obviously Christians. We see an example of this in Acts 5, 13 through 14. Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira have just breathed their last. And we read in verse 12 of Acts 5 that many signs and wonders were regularly being done by the apostles among the people. And it says the church was all together at a spot in the temple complex called Solomon's Portico. And we read in verse 13, Acts 5.13, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. We can infer from that verse that the Christians were set apart. The Christians were identifiable. In order for someone to not dare to join them, people would need to know who them is. Why did no one dare to join them? Well, we don't, we don't see that in the text, but perhaps it was because Ananias and Sapphira were just struck down by God for lying. It says in verse 11 that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So you hear that. You hear about Ananias and Sapphira dying because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And unless you were a true believer in Jesus Christ, you may not have wanted any part of that. But notice also in verse 13 that the people held them in high esteem. Again, we don't know why exactly they were held in high esteem. Perhaps it was uh, the signs and the wonders that the apostles were doing among the people. But in any case, those who dared not join them still held them in high esteem. We also know from later in the book of Acts that this high esteem eventually wore off and the persecution of the church began. But it is notable that at this time, the church was being held in high esteem. It is possible in, in a time of history for the church to be held in high esteem. We see that in various times and places in church history. We shouldn't be obsessed about being held in high esteem. We definitely shouldn't expect to be held in high esteem. For Jesus said, if they hate you, know that they hated me before they hated you. Instead, we should focus ourselves on Christ and on what he has commanded us to do. And if we do that, and if we are faithful in what he has called us to do, then we will stand out. That's inevitable. It's inevitable that the church will stand out because Christ-likeness is so contrary to worldliness. Being like Christ is going to make you stand out from the world. And if you don't stand out from the world, then either you live in a place where most people are Christian or you look exactly like the world. Some churches purposely try to make their worship services look just like the world in order to attract the world, but they do so with great, great compromise. What about our churches? If your church does not stand out in this world, it may not be because you look exactly like the world. It may just be because the world doesn't even know you exist. And that's probably not good either. Our churches are lighthouses wherever we're located. And if your light doesn't shine before men, that's not good. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our churches, this church, your churches, should be known for our love, both in word and in deed. The communities around our churches should be aware of the gospel that we preach and the Christian love that accompanies the gospel that we believe. They should see our good works and they should glorify God. They should say, 
you know, I disagree with, they, with what they believe. And, and for some reason, I do not like them. But man, those people are something else. There is something different about them. If we are indistinguishable from the world, that's suspect. One way that we should stand out if we're believers is by our generosity. Our generosity, we see that in 2 Corinthians 9.13. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is collecting the church, uh, rather collecting for the church in Jerusalem, which is currently in a crisis. And by the way, notice that from this example of, of Paul collecting for the church in Jerusalem, that even though churches are local, that doesn't mean that a local church is isolated from the church at large. The church in Corinth was bound by Christ's blood to the church in Jerusalem. And it is good for local churches to cooperate in Christ. It is good for Emmanuel Baptist Church to send us a preacher. It is good for Providence Reformed Church to send us a music leader. It's good that we have several churches represented here this morning as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer. So just as a quick side note, a quick detour don't be so autonomous as a church that you lose your Catholicity. More simply put, don't be so focused on the local church that you disconnect from the greater church of God. Back to our passage. Paul encourages the Corinthian Christians by saying that their contribution is not only going to help the needs of the saints, but it will also overflow in many thanksgiving to God. And then in verse 13, we read this. Verse 13. By, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So let's break that apart. Why would the church in Jerusalem glorify God? Because of the church in Corinth's Submission to God. Where does that submission come from? It comes from their confession of the gospel of Christ. So the Corinthians' submission to God was a natural outflow of their genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And what else is a natural outflow from this verse? The generosity of their contribution for Jerusalem and for all others. So in other words, when we're generous... It is a manifestation of our obedience to the call of Christ. It is evidence that we have been saved. We are saints by calling, and our obedience to that call will be visibly manifested and evidenced by our profession and walking. More simply put, we're going to stand out. We're going to be different from the world. So church members are a local group of believers and these believers do life together and stand out from the rest of the world. And finally, these believers hold each other accountable. These believers hold each other accountable. Paragraph 12 of the Confession says this, that all that are admitted unto the privileges of a church are also under the censures thereof. A censure, we don't, we don't use censure very much anymore except for when they censured the president recently. But a censure is when someone expresses disapproval. That's what a censure is. A wonderful exhortation in this vein is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And a First Baptist Church is not liable for any paper cuts you might get during Reformation Conference. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. In this passage, Paul is giving his final instructions to the church in Thessalonica. And in verse 12, he writes this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And then in verse 14, he writes, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. 
The reason why I just pointed out verse 12 a moment ago was not because I'm a pastor and wanted to take the opportunity to exhort you to respect me, but rather because of the word brothers in verse 12. The word brothers in verse 12. Just as brothers in verse 12 is referring to the whole church, so brothers in verse 14 is also talking about the whole church. In other words, it's not only up to the pastors to hold members accountable. It's up to all the members to hold their fellow members accountable. That's why when you come to us and say, someone says doing this, we're like, what are you doing about it? I'll help you, but what are you going to do about it? Paul urges them to do so, and we are likewise urged to do so. We are to, look at verse 14, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul specifically calls out people who are refusing to go to work. And, and maybe that's the specific sin that he's encouraging the church to call out. But more likely, he's just referring to idleness in general, laziness. The church is supposed to admonish the lazy. To admonish means to warn someone firmly, to warn the lazy firmly. The Bible from which we are to speak the truth in love warns strongly against idleness, warns strongly against slothfulness. It's destructive temporally, but more than that, that might be a bad indicator of one's eternal state. The Lord has called you into diligent obedience. And if you're lazy, either you're going to be disciplined by him in love or you're going to show yourself to not truly be one of his servants. That's why the members of a church need to admonish the lazy among them. We're also to, verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. This whole verse is a great verse for counseling, for discipling, for pastoring, and just speaking the truth and love in general. Why? Because not everyone needs to be admonished all the time. Not everyone needs to be scolded all the time. Sometimes people need to be encouraged. Sometimes someone's not being idle, they're just faint-hearted. They're of small courage, and such a person doesn't need a spanking. They need a pep talk. And then we see verse 14, help the weak, help the weak. So whereas faint-hearted is about lacking courage, weak is about lacking strength. So you might have someone who is courageous enough to do what the Lord requires, but he is just spent. Our missionaries to Indonesia would be a, a good example of this. It's not that they lack courage. They're over there. But there are times when they're just spent. Again, they don't need a spanking. They may not even need a pep talk. They might just need help. They need our prayers they need to know that we love them. They need ranch packets sometimes. For real, that was one of their requests, ranch packets. And, and, and the wife of this family told us that uh, when she saw those ranch packets from us, she cried. <laughs> She's also pregnant, so that it's part of that as well, <laughs> according to her. They need ranch packets sometimes, so we need to help the weak. And then we see an exhortation that includes all of those types of people. And it says, be patient with them all. Even though we need to sometimes speak more firmly to the idol to admonish them, that never excuses us from bearing the fruit of the Spirit that is patience. Because even in our own idleness, God is patient with us. So we need to be patient with all. The point here is that the admonishing, the encouraging, and the helping are being not done only by the pastors, but by the church members, by everyone. Everyone has the responsibility to hold each other accountable. And everyone has the responsibility to be held accountable. We're going to see this a bit more in tomorrow's session titled, What Should You Do If You Have Issues in Your Church? But suffice it to say for now that being a member means being held accountable by the church, especially your local church. And you can't do that unless you're part of a church. So are you doing that? 
Are you actively involved in holding your brothers and sisters in Christ accountable? Are you ready to admonish, to encourage, and to help being patient with all? Are you being held accountable? Do you recognize that being part of a local church does mean having, quote, the privileges, but that you're also under the censures thereof? As we'll see tomorrow, that's, that's God's design for your good. And that's why it's part of being a member of a church. So, church members are a local group of believers, and these believers do life together, stand out from the rest of the world, and hold each other accountable. Much more could be said about church membership, but this is a good place to start. That is what being a member is about. It's not about perks. It's not about rewards points. It's about willfully walking together in Christ. And here are four quick applications for us. First, make sure you're a member of Christ. Being part of a local church is important, but more importantly, are you even a member of the body of Christ? Do you trust in him for salvation? If you don't believe in him, then you're not part of the church, and you are still under the wrath of God for your many sins. But Christ lived the perfect life that you could not live and died on the cross for sinners like you. And if you trust in him, your sins will be forgiven and you will immediately be a member of his body. So make sure you're a member of Christ. Secondly, act like a member of Christ. Act like one. If you're a member of a local church, that only really matters if you act like it. Being a member means doing life together with your church family. It means being devoted to learning the things of God, participating in people's lives, having real communion with each other, and praying with each other. And if you're not doing things, these things, if you're not doing these things, your membership is defective. And your membership in Christ is questionable. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith by examining what your membership in Christ's body looks like. So act like a member of Christ. Third, keep growing in your membership. Keep growing. You may be here and you're already engaged in meaningful membership. Praise God for that. Your pastors thank God for people like you. Continue to make meaningful membership one of the most important things that you do with your life. And fourth and lastly, hold others accountable to do the same. If somebody is idle in their membership, admonish him. If somebody is being faint-hearted, encourage him. If someone is weak, help him and be patient with him. You might be the means that God uses to spur someone on to greater faithfulness. May the God who established your local church and loves it help you to be a meaningful member of it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your church. It's truly a blessing that we can take for granted. We are so grateful for it, Lord. As, as Pastor Corey preached last night, we were taken out from a people in a dominion of darkness, and we were brought to a people who live in a marvelous light. And we ask our Father that you would help us to take the church more and more seriously. Help us to see the church as not something that's auxiliary in our life, but something that is primary. Help us to realize that it is your means to help us to know you more. And help us to treasure it as you have loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.